0: happy friday everybody welcome into mining stock daily this is trevor hall your host for this friday morning long form interview two wonderful segments to share with you today. Uh, We first reach out to Jack Farchi. He's a senior reporter for Energy and Commodities over at Bloomberg News and also the author of a new book, a co-author of a new book called The World for Sale. We're going to talk about that book and lessons learned through that writing process. Uh, Absolutely incredible interview with Jack. Uh, We then turn to our dear friend Tony Greer over at TG Macro for a big conversation regarding the commodity cycle. Uh, Not only do we talk metals and gold, but we also bust open conversation on the ag commodities as well. Uh, This is all on the back of the FOMC meeting and the press conference from Jerome Powell earlier this week. So there is just a lot of topics to discuss We had a ton of interviews this week. Special thanks to everybody who could join me on the podcast for all those corporate updates. I hope you get a chance to tune in to them if you have not done so already. If there are companies that you'd like to hear from, be sure to drop me an email, Trevor at clearcreekdigital.com. I will do my best to reach out to those companies, invite them onto the podcast, and schedule a time for an introduction and interview with those executives. Happy to do that open door policy as best we can here on the podcast. Special thank you to our sponsors that let this thing keep going. Integra Resources, Western Copper and Gold, Corvus Gold, and Rio2. We appreciate your continued support of the podcast. Please go to miningstockdaily.com. Get a full list of the companies that support the podcast. We can't do it without them. And special thanks to all the listeners out there. Thank you for tuning in. Day in, day out. Let's jump into my conversation with Jack. Monster show. Monster show telling you, you're going to want to listen to the full thing. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be well. Welcome back to another segment here on Mining Stock Daily's long form episode for this Friday afternoon, uh, we have a very special guest to bring into to you, it's somebody who's never been on the show before. Uh, in his day job, he's the senior reporter for Energy and Commodities over at Bloomberg News. Uh, but today, the topic at hand is his new book, which he co-authored with his colleague, Javier Blas. His name is Jack Farchi. Uh, Jack, uh, you just a couple months off the publishing of your, your book, The World for Sale. Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. Uh, I finished the book uh, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It's just a fascinating read. First off, may I congratulate you on all the work you did in your book and getting it published into the market. So, uh, you know, job well done, sir.
1: Thank you very much, Trevor. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, this is a this is a really timely book. Obviously, uh, I don't know did did you did you time the publishing of this book knowing that we were going to hit a new cycle in commodities?
1: I wish we had such uh, such brilliant market timing. If we did, we'd probably be significantly richer than we are. No, we we uh, it's a book that we were wanting to write for many years. Both Javier and I have been covering commodity markets uh, for many years uh, before we, we worked together at Bloomberg now, and before that we worked together at the Financial Times, um, and. Really, it's something that we felt for, for a long time that the, the commodity traders, the companies like Glencore and Trafigura and Vitol and Cargill were enormously interesting and important players in the commodity markets. You know, everyone we were talking to talked about them in almost reverential terms as these very powerful and, and, and important figures. And yet very few people, particularly outside of the commodity industry and even inside of the commodity industry, knew, uh, knew much about them uh and so we became fascinated with them and spent lots of time learning about them and getting to know some of them uh and and really felt like you know the world at large needed to know more about them and and this was something that we i mean we've been discussing writing a book about commodity traders for for quite a number of years before we actually got our act together and and uh, and started doing it and and the fact that it's come about just as uh just as everyone is talking about commodities in a commodity super cycle is uh pure fortune
0: yeah. Uh, you, you talk a lot about v- a lot of different commodities, all the way from oil, obviously, is a big player in the book. Uh, you talk about aluminum, a little bit of copper and the metals, a lot of grains as well. So different players in this space um, throughout the generations of the commodity traders. And, you know, we could start out with Mark Rich. Really, you could call him maybe a godfather of how the business had set up through the 70s 80s and 90s through the 2000s when it really started changing but throughout all the success uh, of the commodity trader they ended up really performing their jobs underneath the limelight of everything else happening throughout society didn't they
1: yeah that's right i mean you know one of the main theses of the book is the commodity traders are very important not just in commodity markets and i think that people who work in commodities understand that you know uh, for example, the top five oil traders handle a quarter of the world's oil. That makes them pretty important in the oil market. People understand that, but actually, they've played a really important role beyond that in the formation of the the modern world economy and also in politics. So, you know, to give you, uh, I can give you a couple of examples. One, relatively recently, in 2011, uh, the civil war in Libya. Um, where, you know, the, the there was a group of rebels uh, revolting against the dictatorship of Colonel Gaddafi um, and a civil war brewing. But the rebels had a big problem, which is that they didn't have any or they didn't have enough uh, fuel. All the refineries of Libya were located in areas held by uh, Gaddafi's forces. Um, And then Vitol, the world's largest oil trader, the CEO of Vitol, Ian Taylor at the time, uh, flew into Benghazi in the middle of this kind of period of war uh, and struck a deal to supply the rebels with fuel. He ended up doing so on credit. So Vitol was supplying them with fuel without being paid. Uh, By the end of the war, he supplied them with more than a billion dollars worth of gasoline and diesel, which he still hadn't been paid for. Uh, And that changed the course of the war. And he did all of this, you know, Relatively, you know, obscurely, vetoil a company that most people outside of the oil industry know pretty little about—and yet here is the, the the CEO of the company flying into a war zone, striking a deal with one side uh, of this war, and changing the course of the war. Uh, and and we found that pretty uh, incredible. Uh, another one in the world of metals. Um, if you go back to the 1980s, and and Mark Rich and Co. Mark Rich's company uh, were lending money uh, to. The government of Jamaica. Uh, and, you know, there was, a, there was a whole series of deals where they were lending against future supplies of uh, alumina, because Jamaica at the time was one of the world's biggest producers of bauxite and alumina, which are uh, uh, turned into aluminium. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I had this interview with the guy who was the Minister for Mines and Energy of Jamaica at the time, and it was fascinating to hear him talk about the relationship with Mark Rich, uh, uh, as this commercial relationship that really uh, saved the skin of the government. So he told me this amazing story of one Friday evening he was in Parliament and somebody from the central bank came to see him. Uh, and Jamaica at that time was importing about one cargo of oil every month, which was all of the oil that went uh, to into Jamaica that was refined at Jamaica's refinery and 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 you know produced the gasoline, uh, the petrol that was uh, consumed by Jamaican drivers. And anyway, this official from the central bank came to see him on a Friday evening and said, "Minister, I'm really sorry. We've got a problem. We don't have any money. We can't pay for the cargo of oil." And this was, you know, the Friday evening before uh, the the Sunday or something when the when when the oil was supposed to arrive. They were going to run out of oil. Uh, the petrol stations were run out of of, of fuel. Uh, and and he knew that this would probably mean uh, riots on the streets and the end of the government. And so he called up. Mark Rich, he actually called Mark Rich in person at home in Zug. It was the middle of the night in Zug. Mark Rich woke up slightly grumpy, answered the phone, thought about it for a minute, told him to call back in an hour's time. In an hour's time, Mark Rich had arranged for a tanker of oil to be diverted to Jamaica and to uh, and to deliver some oil to Jamaica uh, without any payment. Uh, you know, The Jamaican government at this point was really struggling financially, and yet Mark Rich was... Uh, delivering them oil, uh, you know, for, for to be repaid at some indefinite point in the future. And that really demonstrates, I think, you know, the way that commodity traders have played a role in politics. If Mark Rich hadn't been able to do that, hadn't been willing to do that, what would have happened to the Jamaican government? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. Hugh Hart, the guy who was there, who I spoke to, was fairly clear that that may well have been the end of the Jamaican government. And so in in that way, the commodity traders have played this role and they've done it time and time again at really key moments in history, be it the you know the nationalization of oil resources and not just oil resources uh, mining resources as well uh, across the middle east africa south america in the 1960s and 70s uh, the the collapse of the soviet union in the 1980s and 90s the rise of china in the 2000s everywhere at, at every stage the commodity traders have played a key role
0: if you look back it, it it's interesting to see how this at time after time again how it plays out where if a if a government is not providing the means to live a happy and healthy life with the commodities individuals need to use on a day-to-day basis, such as oil, such as food, high price of food is a big example, which led to a lot of the Arab Spring rising at that time in two thousand eleven. Um, it's it is such that cohesive element between a happy life and one a miserable life that would lead to an an uprising and where governments need to be delivering on those goods or else they're in their own, they're going to have a major problem. It happens time and time again. Absolutely.
1: I mean, I think I would say there are two ways in which commodities are really crucial, both economically and politically. One is for commodity producing countries. They are often the main or even the only source of revenue. So commodities really just mean money and, in those instances, the commodity traders are the way to get the commodities to market and to turn the commodities into cash. And so that makes commodity traders extremely important. And, you know, commodity. I mean, we all know that oil is extremely important to many of the economies of the Middle East, um, but the same is true for metals and uh, many economies in Africa, in South America um, and elsewhere. And, and then the other one, as you say, is uh, is everything that we consume. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, commodities, what what are are commodities? They're raw materials. They're the building blocks of uh, everything we consume. And particularly when it comes to food and energy, uh, we're all very sensitive to the prices and the availability, particularly the availability of food and energy. And when those things stop being available or go up a lot in price, uh, it matters a lot to populations and therefore to governments. And so commodities are extremely important.
0: Uh, we are going to talk about those price movements here because we're – you probably have noticed. I'd expect you to notice, but we're seeing higher prices. Uh, but before we get there, Jack, I, uh, I, I, do, I don't want to give away a whole lot of the book because I do want to encourage people to give it a chance and to read. It is absolutely valuable uh, just – fascinating read um but you did make me this chelsea supporter blush a little bit because we all knew what kind of deals were happening in roman abramovich's uh box up there in Stamford bridge from time to time but uh, for the first time we actually have an understanding of really how that one small location in london uh really set the tone for the change in uh, russian economics and, and exports of, uh, of of metals i wonder if you could share a little bit of that story Yeah,
1: sure. So, uh, I mean, we tell the story of the the 1990s in in Russia, uh, and how it really became a kind of free for all, particularly for the traders, who came into this world in which, uh, you know, in Soviet times, uh, there had been a few Soviet agencies in Moscow that had controlled the entire exports and imports uh, of commodities uh, in and out of the Soviet Union, and suddenly they ceased to exist. And so somebody else needed to perform the role not only of uh, managing the imports and exports, but also deciding how to manage the flow of goods around the, the the what was the the Soviet Union and then suddenly became several many different countries of the former Soviet Union to to manage the flow of uh, alumina from. Uh, a plant in Ukraine in what was now Ukraine to an aluminium smelter in Russians in Russia, say what that 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 job had been done by a central planner in Moscow and suddenly there wasn't a central planner in Moscow to do it anymore. And in stepped, the commodity traders and started performing the same role. the prize for them was being able to buy resources uh, very much on the cheap. you know, they were able to buy uh, natural resources, ferrochrome, aluminium, copper for as little as a quarter of the world price. Uh, in in Russia, and so obviously made a lot of money. And at the same time, they ended up coming into contact with the people who would go on to become known as the oligarchs. Uh, and indeed, we spoke to several uh, Western commodity traders who told us, yes, we, you know, essentially funded and sponsored the, the oligarchs in the early days. Uh, fast forward, you know, a decade, and some of those oligarchs uh, are setting up shop. Uh, in London, people like Roman uh, Abramovich uh, buying Chelsea, and and you know then and and that continues to feature in the story of the commodity traders. So you know we tell the story of uh, of Ivan Glassenberg meeting uh, contacts in 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 the box in at Chelsea, uh, where you know various different commodity traders, oligarchs, uh, and and their customers are meeting. You know now this has become uh, a key meeting spot for for the commodity trading elite.
0: I wish I would have known that story a couple of years ago when I was at Stamford Bridge and looking up at that. Well, market. you need to look, yeah, you need to keep an eye on the <laughs> box. It's where, it's where it all happens. <laughs> uh, I want to fast forward. You mentioned, you know, traders coming in, buying on the cheap, uh, being very profitable when that happens. It's almost like, what did you learn about their risk appetite here? Because, you know, we get a lot of resource speculators and investors that listen into this show, mainly on the mining side. And one of the things that we we always hear or preach is, you know, buy when there's fear in the streets. Uh, You know, even back in March 2020, when COVID first really hit the tape uh, in the Western world, uh, things sold off quickly. Uh, There was a lot of fear. Uh, Copper was down to two bucks. Uh, Oil was down to negative territory. And while the rest of the public was really almost watching this in disbelief, these traders were in there actively buying and, and obviously being very profitable at the end.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I think I wouldn't like to give the impression that the commodity traders are somehow these kind of all all-knowing, uh, always trading in the right direction uh, companies or individuals. Like they get it wrong in the same way that everyone else does from time to time. Uh, but I think they do have uh, a number of advantages. Uh, one is, you know, being in the physical market and having lots of customers, you know, be they, you know, consumers of commodities, the end users or producers, the the miners say, uh, allows them to have very good information about the markets, uh, often better information than the rest of us. Uh, And the other one is being in the physical markets creates all kinds of opportunities that uh, people who are trading or who are, you know, speculating, for example, purely in uh, futures markets or purely in equity markets, don't have the same opportunities. So, for example, to you know, March two thousand and twenty in the oil market uh, and in some of the metal markets is a perfect example. Where uh, I mean, yes, with hindsight, you can look at the the oil market and say, "Oh, yeah, of course, uh, the oil falling to negative prices was a, was a wonderful buying opportunity." But in reality, that wasn't so easy to execute because oil was at negative prices somewhere in uh, in in uh, inland uh, in in the US. Uh, on the spot uh, that day, futures uh, weren't, uh, you know, the futures for a few months later were not at negative prices. So you had to be able to buy the oil there and then on the spot and find somewhere to store it, and that is what the commodity traders did uh, in huge uh, volumes. Um, and so you know, we've seen certainly in oil trading, many of the commodity traders enjoying record profits. Uh, I mean, Glencore said they had a record profit in oil trading last year. They made over $3 billion from commodity trading. Vitol, the largest oil trader, made $3 billion uh, uh, last year, uh, we have reported the Bloomberg News. Um, some of the big oil companies as well that have big trading desks like Shell and BP and Total also made uh, extremely good profits from trading last year. And it was really all that same trade, the contango play, which was buy oil for very low prices at the very same time, sell the futures forward for a much higher price, because the futures curve is in such a is in such a steep uh, contango, as it's known, uh, and and lock in the profit. And to, but to do that, you had to have to be able to uh, to trade in physical oil, and you had to have somewhere to store it, and you had to have the balance sheet available at that real uh, crisis moment of March 2020 for the world economy. You had to have the capital available to go out and buy the oil.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, President Trump was absolutely right when he said there's literally ships, cargo ships filled with oil just sitting at sea. He was absolutely right. That's what was there happening. Were, there were very many of
1: them. Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I want to get your thoughts here and move this conversation over to the role of China. Uh, you wrote extensively uh, in the book about the 2000s Chinese commodity boom, which act, you know really spurred. That super cycle. And I hope this we can use this conversation to set the stage of getting your thoughts where we are now in a commodity cycle. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to kind of just read an excerpt from the book here. Um, you're writing about Extrada's uh, memo called A Leap Upwards. And uh, what you wrote uh, regarding that memo is, over the next decade... China would undergo an astonishing period of growth and would transform the natural resources industry. It became by far the world's largest consumer of raw materials, as varied as steel, nickel, soybeans, wool, and rubber, causing prices to triple or quadruple. It would make Extrata the most valuable part of Glencore, turning the trading house that had inherited the mantle of Philip Brothers and Mark Rich and Co. into a hybrid of trader and miner. It was a bonanza for the commodity traders like none since the 70s and very few of them saw it coming. Um, Knowing what you know now about that time period and leading up to that, what is the role of China now in this cycle?
1: Um, I mean, I think China now for commodity markets is the important player. Uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, you know, that's part of the story of the 2000s, is that China grew from being just another country that was yeah, an important, uh, an important source of demand, but not the overwhelmingly important source of demand, to being 50% of pretty much every industrial commodity market. Uh, pretty much 50% of demand for every industrial metal comes now from China. Um, and increasingly, uh, a similar share of uh, energy and and agricultural commodities as well. Particularly when it comes to to you know trading agricultural commodities. You know, for example, just you know, uh, I, I'm sure this is these are, this is data that some of your listeners are familiar with. But you know, in 1990, Chinese copper consumption was about the same as Italy, which was about five percent of global demand. In 2000, China was three times as much as Italy. And in 2017, China was 50% of global copper demand, and 20 times that of Italy. So that acceleration has just been extraordinary, and it remains the case that you know China today is 50% of global copper demand, give or take. Uh, what happens in China matters enormously much, and more than any other country in the world by a huge distance. Uh, you know, getting getting right to what's happening in Chinese demand and in and in Chinese uh, you know purchasing and imports is probably or is definitely the most important question in terms of uh, in terms of the direction of the markets, I think. Uh,
0: by mid 2000s, 2005 ish, the word super cycle was the buzzword on Wall Street. Is it now a buzzword on Wall Street? Are oh, it's we certainly a buzzword.
1: That? It's certainly a buzzword. Do Whether- we have
0: a super cycle.
1: Ah, that's an interesting question. I think what we definitely have is a cycle. We are definitely in the midst of a commodity boom, and you can tell a very straightforward story about why the markets are booming at the moment. And it's a a story that is really familiar to anyone who's uh, spent any time in commodity markets. You have a downturn uh, of relatively low prices, low investment in production, low production because prices are low, and then when demand recovers, the production you know the investment in production hasn't happened the production has been relatively low and prices go up. And that's what's happening now. And, you know, last year, the pandemic was like an extreme version of that, where oil prices were negative, copper prices were very low. um, And at the same time, you had this kind of two speed economy where China actually recovered from Coronavirus much earlier than the rest of the most the rest of the world's economies. And so China stepped in and bought up, awful lot of the stocks of metals like copper but also agricultural commodities soybeans corn uh, and swept up and imported a lot of those stocks leading to a situation that that we're in today where inventories of uh, lots of commodities not oil oils you know inventories are still working down from from the inventory build-up that happened last year but but lots of metals agricultural commodities inventories are very low at the same time as global demand is booming because it's recovering from the collapse of last year. And so that's a very clear, you know, cycle, I would say. Uh, Is it a super cycle? That's an interesting question for academics and and commodity strategists. I mean, you could argue that the super cycle that began in the early 2000s driven by China has never really ended. I mean, you know, we're still talking about Chinese buying and Chinese growth and Chinese demand. I mean, I think one counter argument to the kind of super cycle thesis is around energy where everyone is talking about an energy transition. Well, if we really are going to have an energy transition and 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 uh, the world is going to transition away from fossil fuels, that can't be good for oil demand. And so it's quite hard to see how you're going to have a really long term oil super cycle if you also have an energy transition happening. Can you see spikes in the oil price over the next few years? Yeah, absolutely. Of course you can. But will you have uh, a multi-year uh, super cycle market, I, I I struggle to see how you can reconcile those two things. On the other hand, metals, you know, you can paint a story of how the energy transition is going to lead to much higher demand for copper, nickel, nickel, cobalt, lithium, uh, you know, the metals that are going to be important in uh, electrification and electric vehicles and batteries. Uh, and uh, could that constitute a super cycle? I mean, I guess that's up to uh, the people who get to define such things. Uh,
0: but uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, to pick up on that, Jack, one of the ideas that we've been toying around with here is the need for China to be the most dominant player in the this cycle, whether it's a super cycle or not. You get these words of building and improving infrastructure from the rest of the developed world. Is Would that be enough to really spur a cycle to be a super cycle? Or do you absolutely need China to continue to be a buyer of these commodities to get another round of super cycle momentum? I think
1: it will be hard, you know, if we're talking about metals and industrial commodities, uh, it will be pretty hard to see, um, you know, a continued bull market without China at least being, you know, a neutral participant in that. Uh, If China is, if Chinese growth is negative, uh, uh, you know, if China is, the Chinese economy is looking bad, I don't think commodity prices are going to do well. I think that will be a tough, a tough scenario to envisage. I think what you do have at the moment, very clearly, is after many, many years, you know, at least the last decade, I would say, in which China has almost single-handedly been Uh, been driving demand growth for many of these commodities. I mean, there was a number I was looking at the other day. You know, US demand for copper, I think, over the last 20 years has actually fallen uh, at the same time as Chinese demand has done what I was just telling you about, you know, has increased many, many, many fold. Uh, After that period in which China has really been almost 100% of global demand growth for many of these commodities, now you're beginning to see a situation where actually some of the rest of the world is also seeing demand growth or expecting to see demand growth. Um, I mean, you see it, you know, here in in the UK, and I think in, in in North America as well. You know, there's an awful lot of construction going on at the moment, and that means commodity demand. Uh, and so, for the first time in a long time, we're seeing not only China driving demand for commodities, but also the rest of the world. Uh...
0: Almost all commodities are up. I mean you look at copper, that's reaching close to more all time highs. Uh all the grains, ag you know, all the ag grains are reaching new highs, it seems like. Uh lumber's been a you know, another story. Uh given what you've seen in the last couple of months, the increased prices, does any of this surprise you after coming off the publishing of this book?
1: <laughs> um If I could predict commodity prices, uh, as it comes back to the question you asked me at the beginning, if I could predict commodity prices, I would be wealthier than I am, I suspect, uh, or at least in a different job. Um, But uh, yeah, so writing a book and talking to commodity traders, I don't think has given us the ability to predict commodity prices, sadly. Um, I do think that, you know, this cycle, at least, is something that a lot of people did predict, you know, sitting back, uh, you know, nine months ago as the vaccines were beginning to be developed and uh and you could see at least a bit the beginnings of a of an exit from the worst of the pandemic in terms of the economic effects of it uh i think you know a lot of people did predict that commodity prices would recover and indeed they have um you know we've been writing stories at bloomberg about people predicting copper prices going to $10,000 and $12,000 and $15,000 for quite a few months now um so uh, how far does it go? I, 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 I'm afraid I have absolutely no idea. But, uh, but certainly, this, you know, the fact of a cycle, you know, the 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 economic rebound from the pandemic, and that that drives a bu- a bullish cycle in commodities. I think that's been fairly well predicted by a lot of people.
0: Um, you know, as a as a journalist, I know uh, it from one journalist to another. Uh, you know, it is a its it has been a pretty tough time. Uh, to have that word journalist by uh, by your name, uh, your prof- you know your professional credentials, and so t- trying to be humble in my next question, as a journalist in the commodities space and as the author of this book, what is something in the last year that has completely surprised you that you didn't know, and was excited to share?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question.
0: I feel like there's so much stuff
1: that I don't know. Uh, I mean, when it comes to uh, when it comes to the energy transition and batteries, I'm learning stuff all the time because I am very far from being a chemist by background, and I know absolutely nothing about uh, about how batteries work.
0: Um, do you think do you think battery metals such as copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt? eventually might replace oil as king commodity? I
1: think it's tough to see that happening. Uh, you know, the the, the, the the size of the different markets is so different. Oil, you know, is today probably, I think it's about one and a half trillion dollars uh, of uh, value, you know, global production of oil every year. Cobalt is something like $5 billion. Uh, you know, to go from one to the other is, is a big, big, big uh, ask. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. Um, I mean, there's clearly some interesting markets out there in terms of electricity. Uh, and when you're talking about some of the commodity traders we write about in, in the book, like a lot of them are making very significant investments into trading electricity and into investing in renewable power, Projects and that kind of thing, with a view that you know the combination of renewable uh, power plus batteries plus who knows what else uh, is going to make for a very interesting market, uh, you know, and, and a much more important uh, market in in the context of global energy in the future uh, as oil demand and potentially and certainly coal demand uh, declines. I think it's a struggle to see battery metals replacing oil certainly is a driver of profits for, for traders and 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 as a, you know, it, the level of significance for the global economy. Um, but who knows, I've been wrong many times before I can be wrong again.
0: <laughs> uh, Jack, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time. I, I do want to just say thank you for the time you have given us. This has been an extraordinary interview uh, off an extraordinary read. I, I will put a link if it's okay with you, I'm sure you'd want me to put a link into the show notes that uh, goes back to uh, where you can purchase the book, uh, The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. Again, uh, congratulations on the publishing of the book. Job well done. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this is Jack Farchi, senior reporter of uh, for energy and commodities over at Bloomberg and also the author of the book. That's been the topic at hand today. Thanks, everybody. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. We're back here with the second segment of our long-form, in-depth interview here on Mining Stock Daily. Friday morning publishing and uh, uh, happy to finally welcome back in Mr. Tony Greer from the Morning Navigator. Uh, TG, uh, we just had a conversation with Jack Varchi, who is a Bloomberg reporter and also the author of "The World for Sale." He writes about the the growth of the commodity traders, uh, you know, through the '70s, well, last you know, last couple decades, and kind of where we are in the commodity trade now. Uh, I've asked. I asked Jack about his thoughts on a super cycle. I know you have written extensively on the commodities complex, from the metals to the grains and everything around that. So I'll pose the first question to you, my friend. Are we in a super cycle?
2: Well, Trevor first, thanks for having me back here to talk about this, so let's get right into it. Because of a lot of reasons, I think the answer is yes. Right. And to go back over the reasons, uh, I I start off with the Fed doubling its balance sheet last year. Right. So something that has historically never been seen, heard of, you know, never even conjured that we would lock down an economy and need this massive, massive amount of stimulus to pay for the damage that we did intentionally to the economy. Right. So there is a new paradigm to start off with right there. That was the birth of this move, as you know, in March when we went into lockdown, commodities took a very brief nosedive, and I mean very brief, and have been bid-only since that day, since the bottom, right? There's essentially been no let-up in the path of the Bloomberg Commodity Index, right? So this is, to me, the early stages of the market adjusting before the investors have adjusted, right? Because I feel like this the... You know, it's just taking, you know, we've been talking about this for months and I've been writing about it for months. And now the mainstream is latched on to the inflation theme. And we're like, hey, welcome to the party, guys. (laughs) You know, where you guys been? You know, we've been sitting here for months and months, you know, some with our positions on, others, you know, looking to get them on. But, you know, we've been bullish oil since, you know, $10 on the way down. We've been bullish copper. We've been bullish gold. So I think that we can enter a super cycle because I was sitting in the commodity seat at Goldman Sachs at the beginning of the last one and it felt very much the same in the pre-period before the super cycle started in call it you know 2001 02, you know something like that and what it felt like was all of the energy and all of the air was getting sucked up by the dot com bubble and everybody was focusing on the dot com bubble and then that as that burst there was a real need to number one address the market burst and the market breakdown, but number two, figure out for the market's perspective, what was going to be the next investment. And so that's where, you know, tech started breaking down and commodities went on a 10-year run. So I feel like there are so many similar setups, Trevor, right? With all of the, you know, the disco ball in the room, this technology led by Bitcoin, led by, you know, Tesla. You know, the whole picture kind of sizes up the same way where we've got this huge Silicon Valley bubble right in front of our faces and all of a sudden commodities have just woken up. And really, the percentage gains off of the lows are astronomical right there or or for the year to date, no matter how you slice it up, year to date, last three months, last six months off the lows. The gains are astronomical. And this is the kind of thing, Trevor, where, in my opinion, people that haven't seen this before look at this price action and want to fade it and go, ah, I'll sell you corn at six and a half bucks. Ah, I'll sell you crude oil at 60 bucks. You know, I'll sell you copper at 10K. They've just gone up too fast. Right. And in commodities, the price is too damn high is not a bear thesis. Right. Because in commodities, what you've got right now is a line out the door of observable visible buyers with fists full of dollars in their hands to exchange for these commodities right now, right We've got the green movement being pushed all around the world. How much commodities is it? you know I read that the, you know wind and solar takes 12 times as much copper as you know fossil fuel burning engine does. So it's like holy smokes man, we are going to need the mother load of commodities just to implement this green movement which is likely to fail. You know, so we're going to go through this next cycle now where we're just going to be pulling metal out of the ground and I think, you know, getting it to finished goods faster than ever and I really think that it just sets up for higher and higher prices that are going to get passed on to the consumer. So, without babbling for too much too long about it, you know, that that's why
0: I think that that we
2: can be and it seems to me like we're obviously in the early innings of this commodity cycle rather than the middle or the late. That that's just my spin.
0: That's a good interview. Let's wrap it there, Tony. <laughs> Thanks. Have a nice weekend. (laughs) Uh, You know, they say that uh, market history rarely repeats, but will rhyme. But this, from what you just said, I was like, this is market plagiarism.
2: Right, right. Exactly. Right. So that's why, you know, an old timer like me is, like you know, you look at these commodity moves and you're like, oh, okay we're just getting started here. Like, do I have enough exposure for this move? Am I you know, am I exposed across metals, across grains, across energy so that if one outperforms the other, I'm not missing out. And so, you know, I think that we're going to run into a period of time that I'm anxious for where hard assets and commodities are going to outperform the likes of Bitcoin and Tesla and the triple Qs. And it'll be a fun period of time because nobody's expecting that. You know, I, I just don't think that anybody thinks that You know you're going to see a trucking company outperform bitcoin nobody thinks cotton is going to outperform tesla in a year you know what i mean like but we're just going to have to start we're going to start to have these anomalies now that what's cool about in my opinion is that you know plain vanilla investors i don't think that they've really gotten their position on in this trade yet and so i think that as it starts to develop as goldman sachs comes out and says hey we're super bullish commods for the next six to nine months with much higher price targets in gold and copper um, and oil, I think that's the kind of thing that now moves the needle in the boardroom for the plain vanillas to sit down and say, OK, let's look at our books. Do we have enough exposure to this? Do we have too much exposure to that? And that stuff takes months to pan out. And so I think that we're kind of moving toward that phase now where we get a lot more visible Tire tracks in sort of hedge fund and mutual fund investment at different levels, and you know the rotation just keep, is just going to keep burning. Where I think hard assets and natural resources are going to slowly but surely gain on the big tech sectors that are putting up that have been putting up blinding performance numbers. So that's just the way I see it. You know, with the whole macro background fitting in there.
0: You uh, you you had written earlier in this week, in um, I believe, is Monday or Tuesday's morning navigator that you were you were awake in the middle of the night because you were afraid that you weren't exposed to enough metal and, and like the first yeah. thing that popped into my head tg was that opening scene of apocalypse now when captain yeah. willers just awake and like realizes he's still only in saigon you know like this is yeah, like this yeah, is yeah, like this is tg right here awake in the middle of the night yeah. figuring out what to do <laughs> Yeah.
2: No, it's like I felt I literally woke up and I felt like LME Copper was going through 10K and I was like short covering it for a stop loss for somebody that was like, you know, on my desk or something like that. And I'm like, no, no, you no, know, that's just your muscle memory. Like right <laughs> when Copper's rallying, that's just what you think you should be doing. But the reality is, is really just like, like I said, there, there's there's nothing but buyers and they're starting at ground zero now realizing how much metal that they've got to buy and how much inflation hedge they want in their portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I think that we're in the very early stages, just to get back to your initial question.
0: Yeah, uh, so you, what about jumping in the timing of this? Like if, if you're not exposed to the metals side of the commodity cycle, but you go and you look at these charts and you're seeing things moving up, you know, like and they always say, you know, don't be buying at the top. Wait for a pullback. Right. But you know, right. like here's a couple examples of moves I missed. Uh sold a Freeport position way too soon. Sold a valet position yep. way too soon. Uh you know, all these uh base metal producers I you know I, I could have held a lot longer on some of these option calls that I had, and I would have been much better if I just would have held on because I was not expecting this continued move this fast. Is it still safe right. to jump in? Well, put it this way,
2: you know, you wanted what you want to do is adjust your perspective, Trevor, on these commodity trades. Like I tried to guide my clients on, you know, the ag trade right now. Start from the starting point. It's been a 10 year mark bear market in grains, right? Excuse me. Excuse my French. That has to get blipped out. A, A 10 year bear market in grains, right? So what does that mean? That means that they are dirt cheap. Right. So I'm trying to get my clients to open up their minds to the ag space and figure out how to get some exposure to it. And I'm like, look, if you can be a long term investor, look at a 25 year chart of DBA, right? The ag, you know, the ag ETF, right? It's got grains in it, et cetera. It's all your ag exposure that you want. Look at a 25 year chart. This thing came crashing down from the 40s when. We so when we had the uh, excuse me when we had the great financial crisis, so you know this is the ag ETF that has now pounded its way down to twelve dollars and has just turned and has traded up to eighteen dollars and is just now starting to break trend and make new highs et cetera et cetera. So my point is just Trevor, if you can look at these things from a long term perspective and say okay at eighteen, the next dollar up or down, who knows? But if TG and Trevor are right and this trend Is changing then I'm going to say The next ten dollars is certainly Going to be up in DBA, right? The next $10. Like, I don't think that we're going to go to single digits in DBA at this point. It seems like the trend just turned and is heading the other way. And so, you know, you look at the grains markets, you look at the base metal markets, which have been rallying. You look at the grains, met- grains markets, which have been already on their butts. And you look at the oil markets, which has been somewhere in the middle. And then you look at the commodities as an asset class and you add all that up and you say, yeah, OK, last sale, I can buy them right? Oil's fair at last sale. Grains are maybe a little bit too expensive. Uh, I mean, excuse me, grains are cheap. Gold is at a fair price. Oil's at a fair price. And maybe grains are expensive right now. Excuse me, maybe... What's expensive right now? What did we just say? (laughs) Sorry,
0: I messed that up. Corn? Corn? Everything right, lumber. Right, exactly. What what right. what is an expensive? Yeah, TG? lumber,
2: something like that. <laughs> lumber, lumber, and copper are expensive right now. Grains are cheap, but oil is somewhere. You know, seems like fair value. Not backing off, still in trend. So, like as a whole, commodities are still a buy. You know what I mean? Like we're not at that stage where they're all carving new highs and and nobody knows where the prices are going. So I just feel like you know overall the mature money manager is going to look at this scenario over the next quarter and say, okay, we don't have enough commodity exposure, natural resources exposure, et cetera. And then we're going to get to the period where the agricultural and commodity-based equities are going to trade straight vertical for weeks at a time and maybe months at a time. And so that's, that's just how I see it. And I think that money actually does come out of big tech at some point. I think money is coming out of the technology sector it's pretty observable in the reopening rotation, how natural resources and industrials are bid, and all the sectors, subsectors of tech from solar energy to biotech to, to software are weak, right? It's observable, it's on the screens every day. So I think that adjustment is happening before our eyes and it's not going to be a linear path, but all that means is that the volatility is gonna be good for us traders.
0: Uh- I I will admit uh, nothing had uh, pumped up my ego a lot more this week than realizing I was in DBA a couple of weeks before TG started writing about it. So <laughs> and that's something
2: you want to hear the truth Trevor. The DBA getting clients back into that is like a sword in my side because I was in DBA for the Morning Navigator clients at 13. Oh wow. Right? Yeah. And I we you know it went up a little bit. I forgot where it was, but I pitched it in a broad de-risking and I was like, okay, this thing is like, you know, I'm either side of, you know, a couple percent on this trade right now. And I feel like it's necessary to de risk. So I, since I can always buy my commodities back, I'm going to sell them out here and hope for a better opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm,
2: Next thing you know.
0: I, yeah. Right? I mean, I, I remember uh, around Easter time, we were literally driving, the family and I were driving from Colorado to Nebraska and along I 80. I saw more grain trucks hauling grain. Than any sort of you know big time transportation hauling whatever, on I eighty yep. it stuck out of my mind because I couldn't remember the last time I had seen that many grain trucks on the interstate, and on top of that it was also uh, just getting out of calving season, so now you're having to feed more cattle, so it was just kind of like putting it all together. You put you know you know one one plus one equals three type of situation. Um, it, it just it was just you know if you can observe that while you're traveling. You kind of know where you need to be.
2: Nobody likes channel checks better than me, man. I've been in the home builder sector because, you know, you can't ride a bicycle down my block without, you know, popping a tire on a construction site's, you know, debris. And it's literally every home around my area is either renovating or has been sold, knocked down, and is being rebuilt. So, you know, coming out of lockdown with, you know, that that was one of the easy sectors to say, okay, I'll try the home builders because... You know, there's still building going on around me, and next thing you know, we have this mass exodus from every large city in the country, and builders are bid only now for months. Yeah. So, you know, the, the the visible channel checks are always a good way to get yourself to pull the trigger on a trade. Uh, I
0: I do promise everybody, TG and I are going to talk about the metals and miners, uh, but we got to get through a couple of bullet points here, and and. It, There's a couple of things I wasn't necessarily prepared to talk to you about because it just hit the tape this morning. That's the move in the bond market. Uh, The German 10-year yield is the least negative it has been since pre-COVID, which is interesting having implications on the U.S. bond market this Thursday morning. So obviously, it's a a day before this is going to record. But obviously, that's having implications on the metals and also the markets as well. very interesting move here on the back of Fed Chair Powell sticking to his guns and uh, mm-hmm. not changing a damn thing.
2: Trevor, you couldn't have said it better. Um, you know, 20 words changed in the FOMC statement, which is like you said. I mean, they literally they, they basically changed the date on the goddamn thing. and And that's a couple of the words <laughs> right there. So, you know, we are we are dealing with Jerome. Nose to the grindstone, Powell, who does not seem the least bit phased by this commodity rally, right? Like you and I keep picking away at him because we keep hearing this transitory word come out. And you and I are looking at the charts and we know damn well this is not transitory type of trading. So, you know, between Powell coming out, you know, and extending the dovish thesis as far as the eye can see, We had Biden last night, which to me sort of just confirms this new posture of more stimulus for everything, right? We're talking about free kindergarten and free college now as the next thing that I imagine they're going to try to pay for. So what is the stimulus? You know, you have to decide what that stimulus means to you. What do I decide it means to me? To me, it just makes stocks the only alternative trade once again, right? And so I can get bullish on things like that. The beauty, as you said, now is if we on demand, you know, with Powell and Biden coming out, the US bond market turns to the lows. All of a sudden, we've got European participation. And as you say, we've got German yields driving higher towards zero, right? That's a really great dynamic. The best thing that could happen to the equity markets is for interest rates in Europe to go positive. You know why, Trevor, because then the European banks will start rallying out of the hole because they'll have some interest rates to deal with, just like the US banks did. And it'll improve the whole entire risk parameter picture, right? Because now there'll be some yield in Europe that you can grab onto. And it just broadens the whole sort of, it just kind of weighs investments out a lot more equally. And I think that that'll be a stabilizing thing for the stock market, which is very much up a flagpole right now. So- you know, to get back to your original question, I think seeing this much stimulus, this much dovishness—I mean, the, the S and P is just reflecting it. And this morning, we're you know out of the gates to a new high. Maybe we got a little over our skis, and we see this pullback now. But overall, nothing about this S and P trend is broken, and it feels like we're up and to the right for the next several hundred points. Now, to be totally honest with you,
0: I, was, I kept on thinking as 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 Powell was there claiming this move in prices is transitory. Or they see it as transitory, and I'm tired of using the word transitory. But it's, I mean, like you, like you, I find that excuse to be complete BS. But if you are on the other side of that transitory inflation argument, wouldn't you be like selling all of your assets at the high right now? Selling your, I'd have my house. I was going to say, sell your house, anything that you had. If you really believe this move in inflation is transitory, you should be liquidating and cashing out.
2: Right. The great point, great point. Cashing up to the gills is what you should be doing if you think that's the case. Um, you know, I, I don't know how you can come up with that scenario when you look at the commodity markets and 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 under, put it this way. I will talk to you about this being transitory if you show me where the commodity supply is coming from that we're going to need for the reopening, the green movement and getting back to normal air traffic, right? So you point to the supply that's going to be sitting there ready for us to get through those episodes. And I'll say, hmm, now I have to think about my commodity bullishness. But in terms of the fact that we've got spreads tightening, we've got, um, you know, from everything from iron ore to hot roll coiled steel to copper to aluminum spreads getting more steeply backwardated, you know, just just a blatant reflection of the fact that they see that there is not enough supply on the markets to wait to make their purchase, I mean, all of that to me just spells sustainable commodity rally and not transitory, because I can't draw a circle around the barrels of oil that are going to be there in a couple of months when everybody wants to go on their summer vacation via car this year, right? So like all of this to me just adds up to just another, another leg of commodity bullishness. It really does.
0: Let's move the conversation over to China. Uh, if you did watch the um, <clears throat> ongoing copper... Uh, tape uh, you did see kind of a bit of a pullback uh, during uh, the Asian markets I, I believe it's yesterday and there was this concern that maybe China would dump some of their of their supply onto the market at these highs well it looks like if you looked at if you looked at the chart it does look like China did dump some copper into the market however that correction was very short-lived and immediately got bought up uh, so here's knowing that and, and you know, that kind of that, that thesis and that idea, what is the role of China here going forward in this cycle, commodity cycle? Do you need a China? We just we posed the same question to Jack in the last segment. Do you need China to be the major participant in this early innings of a super cycle? Or do you need just the rest of the developed world to really come in and and, and take that place?
2: That's a great question. and I arrive at the quick answer of no, we don't necessarily need China to be the epicenter of this supercycle. You know, the last supercycle was China procuring commodities for the warships that they've got floating around you know the Pacific Ocean right now and for the bombs that they've built on them that they are you know ready to deploy, right? That's what the last commodity supercycle was all about, rebuilding those you know all of those city or excuse me, initially building all of those you know satellite cities that, that you know speaks to the whole china expansion is why we had that super cycle so i feel like you know with them being an obvious buyer in the grain market hand over fist and an obvious buyer in the oil market hand over fist i don't know who they're trying to tell that they're going to hold off on buying copper you know and maybe become a seller or something like that you know it sounds to me like they're desperately trying to get the price to back off You know, rather than say that, okay, we're not going to buy any of this copper anymore because the price is too high. Right. That doesn't sound like them. They haven't been price sensitive since they've been commodity buyers. But now, once you know, we're coming out, you know, China may not need as much commodities as the Western world needs at this point, Trevor, because the Western world has been locked down a lot longer. You know, I mean, I feel like there is there's going to be shifts in our economy and rebuilds in our economy that are taking place because of the lockdowns. Still. And, you know, China had a much shorter lockdown than we did. So I don't expect them to go to their balance sheet as much. I don't expect them to have to do as much rebuilding as we do here. And I don't know, you know, I don't think that they are as pushing as hard in the green carbon neutral movement as we are. You know, they're kind of they're they're kind of standing, you know, in the crowd and they want to be there, et cetera, et cetera. But they're still, you know, I'm just reading an article about how they've got to cut down their coal-fired plants before they can even be in the conversation of going green. Right. So if you if you add all of this together to answer your question, I, I feel like the US with our housing with our housing strength right now and our industrial strength, you know, European markets are clearly trying to rebuild. I think that it's fine for the U.S. and the Western world to be the biggest customer of the commodity boom on the side of uh, of that transaction, on this side of the mm. lockdown, I'll say. I don't think China's going to be at the center well, of it.
0: Maybe it's, um, maybe they won't be at the center of the metal side of the commodities. We, we'll see how this plays out. But it's interesting, they still have a lot of people to feed. Uh, in mm. fact, uh, the reports out of last week alone, uh, ending in April 22nd, China bought 9.6 million bushels of U.S. sorghum. They bought 2.3 million uh, old crop and 7.3 million new crop soybean bushels. Wow. So they are continuing to buy. And this just continues to show that relationship dynamic between U.S. ag producers and you know China having to feed their people. There is a unique relationship there. As much as we talk about you know, the... Uh, uh, the you know, disgruntled nature of the relationship between both parties. They, st- yeah. they still really need each other for many different reasons because that's the monster that yeah. was built.
2: Yeah, that's true. Exactly. Just based on where the natural resources have been deposited. You know, this, this is the, this is the uh, sort of, you know, playing board that we're, that we've been given to play on. So yeah, absolutely. Right. Trevor, Well, put. Uh, let's
0: talk, uh, let's move over. Uh, we got to talk about precious metals. Uh, you mentioned uh, a while ago that you are, heavy into the gold space here. Uh, You like where gold's going to go. Obviously, the most natural inflation hedge out on the market right now as we continue to bring out this inflation debate. I don't know if it's a debate anymore. But uh, (laughs) uh, you and I are recording Thursday morning. Uh, This dip after just getting price slammed right at about 8.30 a.m. New York time uh, is thankfully getting bought up uh, a little bit so we've lost about yeah. we, we gained about half of what we lost so far today this yeah. comes after china uh and well the rest of the asian markets and the physical market were buying overnight pushing up close to uh 1790 and then just get slammed as trading progresses uh tg i know you're not a conspiracy theorist at all but this has got to be completely frustrating yeah.
2: yes, Yeah. Frustrating is right, man. You know, I'm not I hate being a conspiracy theorist in the metals markets. You know, I, I, I kind of went through all those arguments in my prior life as a younger trader. And I keep coming up with it's too hard to cover up a manipulation in the precious metals markets. Right. Just given that futures and positions are so well tracked and the physical market is pretty well known and, and kind of transparent. I, you know, I I guess there could be some kind of manipulation, but I just don't think that it's going to be something that is going to hold the price down for an extended period of time. So, because that seems like too much of a job and, and, you know, with people taking, you know, some kind of oath of, uh, you know, oath of secrecy involved, and it just doesn't sit well with me. Unfortunately, though, we have to deal with the observable price spikes lower that are on our screen almost every single morning between. I don't know, the 8 and 10 a.m. bracket. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some days it's at 8 or 8.30 on the nose. Some days it comes a little later. But there seems to be a massive and constant New York time zone seller of paper gold, right? And, and you know somewhere around the markets opening, there's somebody unloads all this paper into the U.S. market. And maybe, Trevor, maybe it's somebody with a humongous ARB position. Right. You just never know, because it, it, as a gold former gold trader at J. Aaron, I could tell you that our, our positions were most of the time way, way bigger than any flat price position that we could possibly have in terms of dollar value and in terms of how much we could move the markets. Right. We used to have EFP positions that would make your eyes water where it would be either long, a tremendous amount of physical versus short on the exchange or we'd be short a tremendous amount of physical and long on the exchange. And in order to either wind up or wind down those positions, you have to be a 24 hour a day worker of that order, meaning 24 hours a day, you're a buyer of bullion and a seller of futures and 24 hours a day to get out of it you're then a seller of bullion and a buyer of futures. So if there's somebody out there that is either winding into or winding out of a position where they're getting long, physical, and short the board, this might be what it looks like. So there's one realistic scenario that it could be that is not in conspiracy world and maybe addresses some of the price spikes that we've seen in the markets. So broadly speaking, though, I think gold... Is starting to have run its course, right? The big, the big, uh, the big villain in the gold market has been the GLD ETF, quite honestly, because we've seen total gold ETF assets falling almost every day for like two or three months now. I mean, literally every day, every week, gold goes up two or three percent a week. It doesn't matter. ETF holdings go down in that week. So we're battling this brutal dynamic where somebody is clearly. Clearly, unloading their gold ETF assets, whether we like it or not, right? Like that—that's not a—that's not a question. The gold ETF assets have gone from 110 million ounces to 100 million ounces. Somebody cut bait, right? So if that's the scenario, I'm waiting for that to lighten up. And and it seems like there have been at least a couple of upticks in gold ETF holdings, while we've seen some coincidental technical turnarounds, right? And in coincidental technical turnarounds. In gold, I'm talking about that sort of double bottom that we put in it in March around 1700, right? So what we're getting now is the bang for our buck of that double bottom low, and it just ran it right into moving average resistance. So now, as we chew away through that, you know, I think that this is where we, you know, this is this makes or breaks the gold bulls right here, right? If we can stay above the moving averages, most specifically the 50-day down at 1740. Gold probably looks good, and we've got a test of the 200-day coming up. If we start to sag, and I would only think that we sag if the dollar starts rallying, which luckily it's back on its bum again. So I think the dollar can go lower and actually juice gold because that's the real impetus behind my gold bullishness. Um, You know, I think that we're just wearing down the gold bears here a little bit as, as they sort of watch the crypto disco ball go berserk. And you know, gold kind of get getting no attention, unloved. But suddenly, next thing you know, you know, she'll go eighteen hundred bit again, and everyone will get excited. So that's my gold thesis for now, and I'm sticking to it. Uh,
0: last question: We're going to stick with gold and, and talk about the the gold miners, and I want to get your idea here because uh, we are starting to see some of those first quarter financial statements coming in. We knew that the price of gold was higher this go around than it was than it has been in previous quarters, obviously. We're getting a big taste. Uh, Thursday morning, we got the Q1 financials from Newmont. Uh, We did report it in the morning briefing Thursday morning, but uh, just to run down, they produced 1.5 million attributable gold ounces with an all-in sustaining cost of just over $1,000 per ounce, generated $841 million in cash from continuing operations and $442 million in free cash flow. And folks... Their average, uh, their average price of sellable gold was just over seventeen hundred dollars an ounce. When we talk about this rotation into value, Tony, you watch a lot of companies. You watch a, you see a lot of financial statements. Anybody else printing cash with this good of margins in the entire market?
2: Yeah, it's no, man, it's no, no, Uh, you know, aside from companies like Apple, which are a total anomaly, you know, just wiping out numbers in in, in every, you know, vertical that they have. Uh, No, you know, they they are really attractive looking on a, you know, on a cash generation basis lately, they're, they're, you know, they're printing pretty good quarters, and I still see them as being in a recovery. Um, Tyler, I tell you, you know, the, the... the, one of the things that I, that's jumped out at me, right, and I, I, I've been I, I watch the guys that watch all the currencies and Raul Pal came out at one point when gold was kind of curling over or down at that double bottom. And he was like, you know, gold is really in trouble here. And that's when I said, OK, there we have a crypto bull gold bear getting, you know, vocally bearish. And I think this is a signal, right? So from that point, gold is ticked higher. And that's when I bought gold miners. Okay, just to be fair, I didn't know which wood I wanted to buy, I decided to buy gold miners instead of gold, for the simple reason that gold miners pulled off a 50% pullback of the move from the lockdown low to the highs, right? So now at least I got a level I can lean on. And into earnings season now, I'm not really shocked that they're backing off. Because off of that double bottom, we got through the 50-day moving average, we got through a downward sloping trend line, and we made it all the way to the 200-day in one move. So where is it going to back off from? The 200-day moving average. And then we're going to fall into support and rally again. But I think it's been a major turn. And Trevor, that's why it's really important to me like I'm gold looks like it's sideways, but I'm watching them like a hawk because it feels like this consolidation period that began sometime at the end of last year is coming to an end. So that that's all I can say. You know, I'm trying to go on a little bit of market tea leaves, a little bit of gut, you know, a little bit of 30,000 foot up view. But to me, with the inflation picture shaping up the way it is, I don't think portfolio managers are going to have a choice but to come after some gold stocks in their portfolio at some point
0: looking forward to that day cuz it wouldn't take much to get this sector really moving. It wouldn't take much. Uh,
2: could you imagine if they adjusted their allocations 25 basis points oh. into metal stocks? It it be- the GDX would double from here. It would double. It would be a $70 item from here. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's the low-hanging fruit side of the trade, you know, and the, and the and the um other side of the trade is like you said those those deflation eases, deflation eases that won't give up. You know, and just refuse to take this commodity, you know, explosion off the lows as something that's going to last very long. And so, if we're right and it does, they'll be coming for our gold stocks. Trevor, don't worry about it.
0: Well, and for and for us who play in the junior, very speculative nature of that we maybe we could stop trading amongst amongst each other and have new players yeah that's a good idea you guys can stop
2: playing (laughs) hot potato with the junior miners
0: right uh tg it's always a pleasure to have you on this was a great interview we covered a lot of ground and uh we always look forward to having you on my friend if you go to miningstockdaily.com uh, we do have uh, a link to uh, TG Macro's website where you can inquire about a subscription to the Morning Navigator. Folks, uh, he's been on fire lately. I'm not kidding. You. I read it everywhere.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for noticing, Trevor. I really appreciate your endorsement. You're one of my favorite people in the markets and i come on your show anytime.
0: All right. We'll, we'll see you here in another couple of weeks then, Tony. You, you got it. Bro. All right. That's going to wrap up this week here on Mining Stock Daily. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We covered a lot of news, a lot of interviews, a lot of commentary. Uh, we're going to take a break over the weekend and be back Monday morning with the news briefing. Have a great weekend. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice.